Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you find the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, and when you find that letter in your New Testament, of course, right after 1 Corinthians and just before Galatians, but when you find the book of 2 Corinthians, I'd like you to turn to chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. I know that earlier in the service, Jared, our Connections pastor, did a wonderful job of welcoming you, but I also welcome you, especially those of you joining us online or here with us live for the very first time. I'd love to meet you at the conclusion of the service. Lord and I will be out front. We'd love to say hello to you. And if it's your first time with us, we have a gift for you. Now I have the privilege of taking you into Sermon 2 of a sermon series we began last week simply entitled, More Than Ever. Now, if you're walking in off the street, if you've never been to church at the mill, you came in a very strategic time because last week we hit pause on a broader study through the book of Exodus. We're going back into Exodus in just a few weeks. But we chose the last few weeks of September and the first few weeks of October to go on this journey together called More than ever. Now, what is more than ever? When we think about more than ever, I described it as a moment in the life of our church. I really believe we are at a significant and strategic place, and I've been praying about this for over a year when we introduced what we said last week, which was some pretty exciting opportunities coming before us. Many moments in life make up our existence. But some moments matter more than others, and this is one of them. Now, to try to flesh out why I believe the moment is so significant for us as a church and what I hope will be for you as an individual, I gave you three statements during the introductory sermon last week. And if you didn't catch that, if you weren't able to be with us, perhaps you were ill or you were traveling, Please go listen to last week's message. It will make this week's message make so much more sense and add so much color to the background of where we are. But here were the three statements, and they, of course, all began with more than ever. More than ever, God has blessed us. I took a moment last week, quite, in fact, quite a few moments last week, to walk you through statistically what has happened in our church. We are not creating momentum. God has done that. We're reacting to what he has done. He has been good to us. Church family, has he been good to us? Amen. He has been good to us. Secondly, our community needs the gospel. This world is dark right now. Our nation has lost its way. And our community is not immune to that. 70% of the homes in Spartanburg County are unchurched. I cannot never use a statistic to speak to people's personal spiritual condition. I recognize that. Your relationship with Christ is yours. No one can look from the outside and analyze community data and make an accurate assumption about where you are in your own walk with the Lord. Now, Jesus said, you'll be who you are in him, and it will be shown by your fruit. So the fruit that we observe in our lives is evidence of a right relationship with God, of walking with him. Not perfection, but of obedience and lordship. But here's what I know. Today, seven out of the ten, seven out of every ten homes you drove past on your way to church at the mill are represented a family 
that is not connected to a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled New Testament church. We are not the Bible Belt anymore. And then that led to that third statement. More than ever, we've got to do something about it. More than ever, we've got to do something about it. And that's where I introduced a new way we're communicating our vision. Church at the Mill will now seek to become a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-side church. Let those words sink in for just a moment. Because this is guiding us from this point forward. This is what we desire. You may say, well, Pastor, I feel like some of those are very much a part of our DNA right now. I would agree with you. I preach from a position of a church that is healthy, that is growing, that is unified, that is vibrant. But I am convinced that when much is given, much is expected. And that means we have to seize this opportunity. And so we want to be, first and foremost, deeply faithful. Deeply faithful to the gospel, to the word, to the Lord. We do not compromise. We will not move off the truth, as you'll see in just a few moments. <clears throat> Secondly, we want to be remarkably healthy. In other words, I know and you know that as a church scales and as a church becomes multi-site, you can always compromise health for growth. We don't want to do that. We want to chase authenticity and real health in every person's life. And then finally, we want to be highly impactful. If I could say anything about this season, it's almost like the Lord gave me about a year ago the green light to say, use this opportunity as a church to go after every person who needs the gospel in this county. Let's go after every one of them. And to do that, we join with many other churches. We certainly don't have a monopoly on the Lord. But we want to accomplish this vision. And I shared that with you last week. And that was, of course, the beginning of more than ever. So what is more than ever? Well, here's the definition I want you to know. More than ever is a three-year spiritual journey of generosity to provide financial funding for debt retirement and the expansion of more campuses. Our desire is to enlist every member. That's many of you. Some of you are guests, and I recognize that. But for those of you who are members, we want to enlist every member in the spiritual and financial journey of supporting our church's vision of becoming deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-site church. Now let me just hit pause. In just a minute, I'm going to crack this book open, and I'm going to encourage your heart. I'm going to love on you with his word. If you think for one second that I'm up here to raise funds, then I have miscommunicated. And if you're a guest of ours and you thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, we walked into week two of a capital campaign. Here we go. We'll come back in a few weeks when there's no high-pressure tactics. Let me just say to you, if you're a visitor, we don't want anything from you. We, we, in fact, our God's not broke. My God is not in want. But the Lord did something in my life early on as a pastor that really convicted me about this. When I think about the opportunity we have as a church, if I truly believe that we can impact thousands of lives in this county and then we can turn those people out to the mission field and to the communities and to the ball fields and to the classrooms and on the factory floors and in the office suites, if I truly believe that, why would I not want to ask God's people to join me in that? 
Why would we not as a church decide we're going to do something? It's been a while. In fact, seven years this fall, many of you were not here when we as a church went down to the Upward Star Center and we had a great commitment Sunday in the culmination of a journey then we called Greater where people made commitments to build this facility which created rooms, chairs, seats, and parking places, not quite enough parking places, but which created parking places for many of you. Many of you have come into our church and have never worshipped in another space. And a church does not exist to build facilities. Facilities are just a tool, but they are a valuable tool. Some of you can say, Pastor, being a part of this church has impacted my life and my walk with Christ. I am not the woman I was when I walked in here the first time because of the faithfulness of God. I'm not the man that I used to be, and the Lord is encouraging me weekly. And for you to hear those words and to be a part of that worship and to experience it, you had to have a place to sit. You had to have a place to use the restroom. You had to have a place to check your children in. All those things required the faith of people that came along way before you and me. Because way back in 1988, 30 people started this thing in the living room of a retired pastor. And so what more than ever is, it's just an opportunity to take a church that's three times larger than it was seven years ago. Statistically, we're three times larger and say, all of us can get on board with this to make an impact in our community. And what will we do? Well, on October 22nd, I'm asking you as a church family to set the pace. At the conclusion of our service, my wife and I, along with the leaders of our church, will encourage every family in this church to make a three-year commitment above their tithes and offerings. We're going to do three things with it. We're going to get debt-free. We're going to get debt-free. You're sitting in a $16.8 million facility, and I am very proud of the faithfulness of God's people to tell you this morning we owe less than 7.4 on it, and we've only been in it since 2019. So let's get it done, because when we get debt-free, then we take our mortgage payment, which is ultimately what it is, and we turn that into more missions and more ministry and more campuses. That money will also be used to make sure we can take care of our other campuses. At the conclusion of this service, we're going to have a church-wide vote because we have a great opportunity to purchase the Woodruff campus from our tenants. We're about to own 10 acres in the center of Woodruff with a large building that has a lot of need for repair but will be the heartbeat of that growing community. The Lake Cooley campus we own due to the faithfulness of another church that handed it to us. But it certainly needs more renovations and more spaces. And those two are just the beginning. And starting a campus does not mean you just find a building. You have to have pastors and associate pastors. In fact, our Lake Cooley campus pastor, his name is Dylan Baxter, a great young man. His wife gave birth to their first baby yesterday. Yeah, we rejoice in that. And that means he is not in the pulpit this morning. I told him that we had so many. There was one time Laurel gave birth on a Friday night, and she said, go ahead. I know you want to go preach. So I came and preached and then went and picked her up. He said, this is the first one. I can't do that. I said, no, you can't do that. You need to hover close, you know. You're pretty much worthless in the hospital. In fact, all they give you is a window seal with a two-inch cushion to sleep on. But get all the sleep you can because when you go home, you can't page the nurse. 
But because we have a wonderful associate pastor, Perrin Powell, he attended the sermon preparation meeting this week and stood up this morning ready to go. It requires personnel and trained men and women to do this work, and that's what we're going to do. And in, and in doing so, as we gear up toward October 22nd, you can make a mistake by making about pleading for money. I'm not interested in your dollars. I want you to come before the Lord and faithfully ask him what you should do. And if you deal with the Lord, then your financial commitment will be whatever God intended it to be. I've learned a long time ago that as much as it depends on me and my family, we know we cannot outgive him. So we want to be faithful, and I want you to be faithful. But you know something else I learned? People don't give to projects or goals or spreadsheets or data. People give to vision. They want to be a part of something that is significant, that matters. And so that's what I want to do the next few weeks. I don't want to talk about money. I want to talk about the vision that God has given our church. Because I actually think it's not just about our church. It's about you. You see, one of the temptations is to think that, that corporate vision is something separate. M many of you may come into this room this morning and you may say, Pastor, this is great, and I'm thankful our church is in a good place, but I'm not. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm hurting today, and I'm, I'm thankful for your excitement, and I, I'm thankful for this church. But, Pastor, do you have a word for me? Can I tell you that every time we open this book, it's a word for us, and it's a word for you. It can do both. In fact, when we think about the vision of our church over the years, we've always dwelt on what God has called us to do, to gather, to grow, to give, and to go. We've talked about that, and we've used that as our vision of, of what we want to do. And when we think about what we want to do to gather, to grow, and to give, and to go, I feel like many of you have it. It's all over the walls. We've talked about it. We've prayed about it. We've studied it. We want people to gather for worship, to grow in their walk with the Lord, to give of their tithes and their time to serve, and to go and to share their faith. It's pretty simple, and those words come right out of the New Testament. But I felt like it was a time for us to drive a little deeper to our values. Like, what's our why? Why do we gather? Why do we grow? Why do we give and why do we go? And when you think about values and you study the New Testament and you ask, what should a church and what should a Christian value, there are no less than six. Now, when we think about these values, I'll put them on the screen quickly for you. We value the gospel of God in all things. We've sung the gospel this morning. The gospel was read this morning. The gospel's all we have. In fact, tomorrow on the job site, tomorrow parenting that difficult child, tomorrow navigating that difficult situation, the gospel is really all you have in that, and it is enough. Whether you're putting your life back together after a serious series of poor decisions or you're walking in faithfulness after many years of walking in faithfulness, don't ever get over the gospel, the good news that God loves you and wants to use your life through redemption that begins with his son. The word of God in preaching, the glory of God in worship, the legacy of God in the next generation, the growth of God in us, the mission of God to the nations, and the love of God for community. That's what we value. And so that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. These values. And of all the values, 
One of them has to come first. The one that comes first ultimately drives direction and drives decision. And that value is the gospel of God above all things. You ever think you're tracking with people and they miss what you're saying? Some of you follow me online and you, you saw this. It was hilarious. Last week was a big week. We've been praying and talking about it and announcing it. And the precious sister in the Lord who teaches five-year-old Sunday school has my daughter. My daughter is equally beautiful and wicked. <laughs> she needs the Lord. She's not redeemed yet. And I love her very much. And so the Sunday school teacher said to her yes, last week, Evie, do you know the big announcement today? She said, yes, I do. Oh, you know what your daddy's talking about? I do. Well, please, Evie, tell us. She said, my daddy has been saying it all week. Our dog is in heat. And he, he said she cannot get around boy dogs. <laughs> Five other five-year-olds said, teacher, what is heat? <laughs> the five-year-old class does not understand more than ever right now. But they may have had a, a crash course in the birds and the bees of the canine world. <laughs> when I think about more than ever, I think about the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's everything. It's, in fact, what Paul gave his life to. For those of you with us weekly, you know that for the last two years, we've been in 1 Corinthians, so the Corinthian passage should be somewhat familiar to you. Paul planted a church in Corinth, and after he set up the leaders and set up the doctrine, he left. And when he left, some unqualified people with wrong motives got involved, and the church lost her way. They lost the gospel. When Paul found this out, he wrote a letter to them, then wrote a second letter to them that we have as 1 Corinthians. I know that's confusing, but according to the text, there are no less than four letters Four correspondence between Paul and Corinth, we just have two of them preserved by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Now, not to confuse you anymore, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in your Bible are actually in that series of four letters to Corinth from Paul, the second and fourth letter. We don't have the first one, and we don't have the third one. The Holy Spirit did not see fit to preserve that as Scripture for us. However, we have reference to them in here, and so it goes something like this. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and we spent two years in it. I met someone the other day who heard about the study, and now they're going back and listening to that message, that series of messages in 1 Corinthians. And I'm so thankful for the gift of technology that allows us to do that. But for those of you who are with me each and every week, whether you're online or live, we were in it, and we were in it verse by verse for about two years. After 1 Corinthians is received, a second letter, a third letter is sent, and things did not go well. In fact, there was actually a confrontation. Paul shows up in Corinth and is really opposed by his adversaries who don't want to give up control of the church. He challenges them one last time, and by God's grace, repentance begins to happen. Most people believe that Paul, at this point, was not in Corinth, but he received word that the Corinthian church had righted its wrong. 
It was turning itself around. I love this. We love to blast churches that make the headlines for controversy. We find it fascinating when people fall greatly. I, I think we as God's people ought to celebrate churches that come back to the gospel. We ought to celebrate second chances in people's lives. We ought to celebrate when someone says, I was wrong, I was selfish, I was sinful, but I'm not that way anymore. I've turned. I've received God's forgiveness. And when God forgives someone, we ought to give that forgiveness in heavy doses of grace. And this is what Paul is doing in the book of 2 Corinthians. But it doesn't mean as an apostle, as a missionary, as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer. And Paul wore all of those hats. It doesn't mean that he didn't still need to address some of the issues as they righted their ship. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, on several occasions, he deals with this issue contrasting his ministry to the ministry of the false teachers. And ultimately he says, of everything else I ever shared with you, the gospel's got to be above all. The gospel is all we have. We don't add anything to it and we don't take anything away from it. We began in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, Paul is saying, here's why I don't quit. I may get tired and weary, but I don't quit. My ministry is not by my qualifications, not by my accomplishments, not by my credentials. My ministry is by the mercy of God. I think about what he told Timothy. Remember what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 4? You can look on the screen. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And Paul couldn't get past of why he really should never have been considered for the service of God. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul said, I didn't know the Lord. I didn't know who Christ was. And Christ in his grace displayed mercy to me. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul never got over the gospel. Here's just an application for you. The, one of the quickest ways for a Christian to grow cynical, cold, distant from God is to get saved and get over it. To, to taste redemption and then to forget how sweet it is. To be so immersed in Christian thought and Christian teaching and Christian practices that you lose Christ in the fray. I was meeting with a group of pastors recently about the burnout rate of pastors and I Asked them to tell me the last time they wept by themselves as they listened to a praise song. Now, every guy in the room has a different level of emotional display. And I, I recognize not everybody weeps often. But men in your pickup trucks and vehicles and offices and wherever you may find yourself alone, if you, if you never find yourself a bit misty-eyed over the grace of God in your life, that's a problem. And it's not one that I care to point out to beat you up. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm telling you 
that men and women who love the Lord Jesus ought to feel something when they think about what he saved them from. You don't live and wallow in the guilt of your past. You don't walk around beaten down, feeling as though you're second class. No, when the blood covers you, it's covered, it's gone, you're forgiven. But you do not forget the depth of the sin and the distance between you and the king and in his loving kindness, he saved you. And, and, and Paul said, that's why I don't lose heart. I shouldn't even be here. This is how you guard your life from arrogance or pride or judgmentalism. The moment you see someone frustrate you to no end, before you give up, before you give out, before you give in, you stop and go, but by God's grace, I could have been there. And then he does something pretty interesting in verse 2. Look what he says. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You may want to jot this down. There's three characteristics of a church when the gospel's above everything else. And these characteristics have everything to do with what we won't do. When the gospel is first, we're not tempted to tamper with the truth. We don't compromise. Because we love Christ so much, we will never move off his word. While we care about the culture and we care about people, we love him more. So we never let the culture determine our morality. We never let what is popular today move us off what has always been eternal about the God of the living word. And this is interesting because Paul knew full well that this church had been the recipients of people who had been so enamored with popularity and power that they compromised on the gospel and tolerated all kinds of sin. This is why he says, we don't do, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. That word actually means to trick. It's used a few times in the New Testament, never in a positive light. The idea is that you play with people, that you manipulate your message to draw them in and never love them enough to confront them with the truth of God's word. Just think about what is now determined by our culture to be controversial. It is now a controversial statement to say God created man and woman in his image and he chooses your gender. It's now controversial to say God's design for sex and marriage is one man and one woman inside of one covenant. It is now controversial and insensitive to say if you have children, you ought to feed them. It is now controversial and insensitive to say that a man who's not worthy to work and willing to work, if he's physically able, ought not eat. It is now controversial and insensitive to say that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to eternal life. Yet Church at the Mill will never move off of these things. Why? Not because we are brave in and of ourselves, not because we want to be abrasive or adversarial, 
we love the God of the book more than we love the little g God of the world. We won't tamper with it. It's too good to mess up. If I really believe that the blood of Calvary cleansed me of all unrighteousness, took away all my filth and sin, sealed me unto a day where God will receive me and allow me to live with him in perfect harmony in a new heaven and a new earth forever. If I really believe that, why would I ever change that? If I really believe that the most joyous place for children to be raised is in the home of a man and a woman inside of covenant marriage, why would I ever stop driving young people to chase after that? If I really believe that true sexual satisfaction and fulfillment is found in the confines of a covenant marriage where a man and a woman give all of themselves to one another exclusively their entire lives, why would I not want my neighbor to have that? If I really believe that God cares deeply for the confused, but we go to the confused with the clarity that you are not a highly evolved ape, but you are a child of God made in his image for a purpose. Why would I stop short of telling the world that? This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, because of the grace of God, not from a place of judgmentalism, not from an air of superiority, but just because of the goodness of Christ and the truth of his word, I'm just not tempted to tamper with it. I don't know the future of Church at the Mill. I don't know if we'll be four campuses or five or eight. I don't foresee us attempting to be something that's gaudy or something that tries to win some statistical war. We've never made it about numbers. But if God in his grace expands our church to multiple campuses, as long as I have the privilege of being your pastor, I promise you every one of those, every Sunday morning, will be filled with a God-called spirit-filled man who will open up the book and he will not move to the left or to the right. He will not be tempted to tamper with it. He will give people with joy the truth of God's word. We won't move. And when the gospel's above everything, we're not only not tempted to tamper, we're not rattled by the rejection of redemption. This is not going to be easy. Do you think the enemy wants us to take the upstate? Do you think the enemy wants a preaching post in every community where Christ's word is exposited? Do you think the enemy wants us to run headlong into the lies that are filling the ears of our children and say the truth of God's word has not changed? Of course he doesn't want those things. And Paul knew the brunt of being judged by popularity. Look what he says in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, even if people don't find this popular, even if people won't believe, even if they don't see it, Paul knew why. Look what he says. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when we run up against opposition... When we push hard into a community and the enemy pushes back, we're not rattled by that. One of my favorite theologians is Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson famously said, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. And the truth is, if a church is serious, I mean serious, 
about really going after this county, really driving a stake in North America to say, if you want to see what a large church can do when she turns her people out and produces preachers and goes after pulpits to make sure that churches are healthy and strong, when a church is serious about this, the enemy will oppose it. As your pastor, I'm not a prophet, I'm a pastor, but in the voice of a prophet, I'm telling you, this is not going to be easy. And, and, and when it gets hard, here's why we won't be rattled. When lost people oppose the gospel, it's because they're lost. It's because they're lost. We can't take it personal. I'm not angry. Paul says they're blind, and they've been blinded by the God of this world, a reference to Satan who does not want them to see the light. So I don't want to hurt a blind man. I want to help him see. The way we help him see is that we don't allow our success to be determined by whether or not it's popular. And I would just say that about your life too. Some of you boys in this room are cleaning up your language. You're trying to speak better at work. And when somebody makes fun of you for cleaning up your language, and somebody makes fun of you, ladies, because you choose not to criticize your husband in a conversation. When somebody makes fun of you because you take a stance in your children's life and you won't allow a sleepover at a certain home or you'll meet with a teacher about a certain subject. When somebody makes fun of you because you're redefining your relationship to partying as it used to be in your life. When somebody pushes back and jides you and pokes you, don't let that rattle you. You just smile and keep falling more in love with him. Keep cleaning that language up. Keep saying no to the dark things on the web. Keep loving, lovingly reminding people, God has not asked you to raise all children, but he has given you yours, and you will give an account for the decisions you make. And if that leads to criticism, then all glory be to his name, that you would take seriously the crafting of the little hearts so that they would believe and trust upon Christ and follow him don't get rattled. And finally, when the gospel is above everything else, we're not preachers of programs and personalities and plans. Look what the passage does as it ends. It ends where I'll end. For what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. See the humility there? For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have no desire to see our church expand because we fix people. I can't fix a broken world. But I know a Savior who can heal broken hearts. Early on in what was Anderson Mill Road Baptist Church, they used to say, where broken hearts are mended. You see, a lot of people want to change our country. But remember what I've always told you. I don't know how to change a country. I mean, I got some ideas, but nobody's going to elect me. <laughs> I, I don't know how to change a state. I don't know how to change a county. I don't, I've seen Christ change people. And when Christ changes a man, it changes his marriage. 
When Christ changes a woman, he changes her life. And when a man and or a woman are changed, their home is changed. When their home is changed, their children are impacted. Their neighbors are impacted. And then one house leads to two and two to three. Did you know we have members of Church at the Mill who on their evening walks, that's what you do when you're in your 50s and 60s and your babies are gone, you go for a walk together. It helps with indigestion, you sleep better. But we have people in our church who walk with their spouse and just pray for every home in their neighborhood. And they can point out the ones that they've invited and have been reached and are coming and are a part of our church because they loved and they prayed. Now, now I believe we have members in every zip code in this county, and this is the largest geographical county in the state. Can you imagine if we released ourselves like an army to say, I'm not pushing a church. We're not pushing our pastor. You've not seen us expand once via simulcast. There are live men preaching at Lake Cooley and Woodruff this morning and in our Asian congregation. We're not pushing a personality or a, a pastor. We're not pushing a plan or a program. In fact, we put the cookies on all the shelves. You involve yourself in many different ways in our church. We're pushing a savior. Because that's really all we got. A couple hundred years from now, nobody's going to remember us. But what they could say is, my great-grandmother came to know Christ at a church in Spartanburg County. And it changed the trajectory of our family. It's why the gospel, who is a person, is really all we have. Years ago, my oldest boy was a little boy. He's a man now, but he was a little boy. We were driving. He and I talk about the moon a lot because we're hunters. The moon matters. And so he said, Daddy, why do some nights the moon shine real bright and other nights it only shines like a little sea? It's a great question. A lot of times kids also wonder why the moon's following you. You know, if you watch it out the car, it looks like it's just tracking with you. I said, son, I'll, I'll tell you why. The moon doesn't shine got no light. In fact, there's no heat. It's freezing up there. We landed on it and they had to wear their wool panties. It's cold. All the moon does is reflect the light of the sun. That's all we do. I'm not asking you to be a part of a momentum driven program with systems and processes because we think we can change the heart of people I don't have to change people's heart I have a savior who can we just make him known in fact that's ultimately what the table is the table is one of the most unifying places of the church because it is at the table that the whole church comes together and says, we as a body profess that our hope corporately and my hope individually, if you, if you participate, is in the cross of Calvary, the shed blood of Jesus, his broken body for my sins. I'm thankful for my church. I'm so grateful for the principles and the morality that people taught me when I was a boy or a girl. I appreciate my education. 
I'm thankful for self-discipline. I'm thankful for a strong work ethic. I mean, there's a lot of things that shape a young man or a young woman into an adult. Some of you live long enough, you got enough wisdom to say, I'm thankful for my scars. I'm thankful for the bumps in the road. I'm thankful for my failures. I'm thankful that I serve a Savior who makes the lame to walk and sets prisoners free. Doesn't define people by their past. But if I push all that down, I'm ready to step into eternity because of the blood of Christ, because of the gospel. Jesus told us very clearly in his word that the table was a table to remember his sacrifice and to make sure we don't get away from that. In the book of 1 Corinthians, three pages over, don't turn there, but three pages over in the 11th chapter, Paul said this about the Lord's Supper. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the idea is, is that the table's not for the outsider. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, if your salvation is not in him and him alone, we could not be more excited that you're here. But as I just said, we will not tamper with the truth. The Lord's Supper is for people who have already made that decision. If you have a child sitting next to you who's not yet made that decision, that's okay. Many of my children over the years watched their mother take it in anticipation of the day that they would come to full understanding and to faith. But they had to do that on their own. But for those of you who would say, Pastor, I'm Christian. I, I, I enjoy communion. The scripture also says, don't do it flippantly. I recognize that scale demands that so many parts that were special to smaller churches, it's difficult to emulate. I recognize that you're holding a piece of plastic with a, a preserved substance in it that's similar to the cardboard a pizza box is made out of. But it's really not about that. It's about what it represents. So when you take the wafer and you take the juice, you're saying, Lord, I'm right with you. Not perfect, but there's nothing in my life that I've not dealt with is why I never want to rush into the table. It's why we don't tack it on. It's why I want to give you pause before we take the Lord's Supper to reflect in your life and in your heart a simple question. Is the gospel above all things? Would you bow with me? Perhaps with the cup in your hand and your head bowed. Is there anything in your life that's taken precedence over the gospel? Any sin that you've chosen to hide or to not bring before the Lord? Friend, there's nothing too dirty that he cannot cleanse. For some of you, it may not be something sinister. It may not be salacious or secretive. It, it might just be a career. Worry, anxiousness, impatience, a sharp tongue, a spirit of resentment. I don't know. It's none of my business, friend. 
Holy Spirit knows, and he's revealing that to you. Would you take just a moment and deal with that? And as you do, in your mind's eye, with the power of imagination, Picture Calvary. 